Well, I don't know whether I should apologize now or if I should apologize later. Because we are going to talk about something that is, well, it's not easy. It's not easy to, um, <clears throat> to wrap our... Hmm. Might, might, might not be easy to talk either. I don't know. Some of you better start praying now. It's not easy to... to Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So it's not easy to wrap our minds around. It enters into the realm of, of mystery. And it can, it can just be kind of hard to try and all comprehend. But it's likely something that you have already given thought to. However brief or, or fleeting that that might be. But my hope is, is that knowing that you are a thinking person... My hope is, is that if, if it's something that you consider, if it's something that you wrestle with, it's something that you kind of try and muddle your way through. My hope is, is that it's going to be something that if we talk about it, it will help in your, your walk with God and you staying true to your faith. Back in the summer, in the months of July and August, we spent like 10 weeks on a series in the book of Acts. And what was to be part 10 in that series on September the 3rd, I took ill, so this is that message that was to be on September the 3rd. In the end, or in the back end of the book of Acts, in the latter chapters of that book, it seems like one bad thing after another is just happening to the Apostle Paul. One bad thing after another. For instance, you know, in Acts chapter 26, what ends up happening is that he ends up being taken into custody for reasons that authorities claimed was a disturbance of the peace. Paul, however, he, he deemed it was because he was talking about Jesus and the way, which was generating much discussion. However you look at it, Paul actually, he appealed to Rome, thinking that he couldn't get a fair trial in Judea. So here he is, he's on his way to Rome aboard a ship, along with sailors and prisoners and soldiers, 276 passengers in all. It's a 3,600-kilometer journey to Rome. And you thought it was a long ways to get to church this morning. So here's Paul with these others that are on this ship, and they run into a storm. What is basically, it's, it's a hurricane. And it goes on for days and days in their travel, where everyone becomes afraid for their lives. And so Paul with these others in the storm, at one point, he says this to them. This is what he says. I'm hearing voices. This is what he says. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, 
an angel of the God to whom I belong. I love that phrase. The God to whom I belong. Do you belong to God? That, that ought to alter your perspective in life. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told, you, told me. Not one of you will be lost. Not one of you will die. So be courageous. And if you read a little bit further down that passage, the soldiers, they were, they were still scared. And they attempted to let down a lifeboat, planning their escape and to leave. Only Paul gets wind of this. And he says this. It says, then Paul said to the centurion, centurion who is the, he's the captain of the soldiers. He says, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. In other words, unless those soldiers stay with us and with the ship, we're not going to survive. We're not going to be saved. And what's mind-blowing here is that, I mean, just a few verses earlier that we had just read, that on the one hand, God had spoken. Nobody's going to die. And Paul was absolutely certain that this is what God had said. And yet on the other hand, he says that unless these sailors, they stay with us and stay with the ship, we cannot be saved. Well, wait a second. What's going on here? How, how, do, you, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you reconcile them? If God is totally in charge and there is no way that anybody is going to die, God says he's determined that everybody is going to live, but then there is this reality of these sailors, or us. I mean, if you put ourselves, we put ourselves in their shoes. We human beings. We have free will. And we believe that we have choice, and there are consequences to our choices. Well, then, is God not vulnerable and limiting himself? Restraining himself in his power? How, how, much, how much is God in control? One of my wife's favorite verses is Proverbs 16.9. It says this. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Or here's another translation. A man's heart plans his way but the Lord directs his steps. And we go, or, or at least I do, yeah, okay, but how? A few months ago, I contacted Scott McKnight, who is one of my favorite theologians, and I sent him a, an email asking him about, you know, have you done any written work on this verse? And I was expecting to get back from him 
you know, like a whole dissertation or at least some sort of a fleshing out of the verse. And do you know what I got back from him? I got back this short email. He says, Grant, all I know is that we have a role to play and God has a role to play. And I thought, hmm, well, thanks. Thanks for that. There's an element of mystery in all of that and how it plays out. But you and I, we are people who like to know the answers to to questions. We like to know the answers to to how questions, right? In fact, in in relation to this topic, people often phrase their question like this. How how can God be sovereign over, over history and give you free will? Or how about this how question? How can Jesus be both God and man at the same time? How did God speak the universe into existence? How, how, how? We, we, we are people, we like to know the answers to such how questions. But they often involve the things of, of mystery, especially, especially when it comes to the deep things of God. John Lennox, who is a retired mathematics professor at the University of Oxford. And he also happens to be a a Christian apologist, so somebody who is a defender of the faith. He one time tells the story of of giving a lecture to some 500 physicists. And after his presentation, a guy came up to him and he says, Dr. Lennox, he said, that was a very interesting talk that you gave on science and religion. But I perceive you to be a Christian. And Lennox said to him, you are very sharp. And the guy says, but you, as a Christian, you, you are obliged to believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God. And Lennox said to him, that's right. And the guy says to him, well, explain to me how that can be. And Lennox said to him, he says, well, let me ask you a question first. He says, do you believe in, in, in consciousness? And the guy says, well, do you believe in consciousness? And or can you explain what consciousness is? And the guy says, well, I don't know. He says, what about energy? What, what is energy? And the guy says, I don't know. And Lennox says, well, that's interesting. He says, because as a physicist, you would believe in both consciousness and energy, don't you? But he says, but but here you are, and you don't know what they are. Should I write you off as a physicist? And the guy says, oh, no, 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 please, please, please don't do that. And Lennox says to him, he says, well, you were going to write me off five minutes ago because I couldn't explain to you how Jesus is both God and man at the same time. He says, but similar to you in believing in energy, because you can explain its resulting power. He says, I believe that Jesus is both God and man, not because I understand how, but because I believe there is evidence that it's true. 
And I tell you that, I share that with you, because if you are witnessing to somebody who's asking you similar-like questions, you can focus on, not on the how, but on the that. In other words, you can focus on the evidence that it's true. In other words, for instance, if you're talking about God's providence and God's sovereignty and, and our human free will, even free will that allows humans a choice to even violate God's will and God's ways. You can point to, for example, Peter in a sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he actually addresses the Israelites. And he says this. He says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, so men who have free will and free choice, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. So was Jesus' death on the cross, was that, was that God's plan? To make way for, for payment for our sins? And for us to, to be reconciled to God and to be in relationship with him. Was Christ's death on the cross, was it planned by God? Yes. Yes, it was. It was ordained by God. And yet it came to pass through the free will choices that belong to us human beings. And that we are responsible for. So when it comes to holding the intention, you know, God's providence or sovereignty and human free will, we hold those things in tension because it's both and. The most practical way of living is to believe that it's both. It's both and. I know people will say, yeah, but you know what? When it comes to problems, when it comes to, you know, trouble that happens, especially to me, you know, when suffering happens, when those kinds of things happen, Trials and hardships and suffering in life, you know, things that could be called storms. When those things happen, how, how do you and I, how do we move forward in faith? How do we move forward? Well, Paul here in Acts chapter 27 on a ship, he believed that God is in control. He's not thinking anything that's contrary to that, and he knows that that what he does, he's responsible for and free. And that what he does, he knows that, as I say, he's responsible and what he chooses to do has consequences. And so he has to, you know, muster up all the wisdom that he can and live as best as he, as he possibly can. But he needs to know that both of those things are true because it's the most practical way of being. But when it comes to you and me and things of hardship and suffering, we often wonder ourselves, don't we? We often wonder to ourselves why bad things are happening to me. And I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that Paul, in large part, he doesn't point to the why. But similar to John Lennox, he does point to the that. that they have happened, and what is ultimately to result. Because he says this, Paul says this in Romans 
8.28, which is actually in reference to suffering. And he's talking to Christians, by the way. He says this. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice he doesn't say that everything is good. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that every cloud has a silver lining. He says that all things work together. Even the most terrible of things. Because from the vantage point of heaven, or from the vantage point of eternity, only God knows right now. From the vantage point of the end of history, from eternity, we will be able to see we will be able to see that one day that God has worked out everything in history, even, even the things of evil intent, that they will accomplish something good. As Joseph said to his brothers who badly mistreated him in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph said this, you intended to harm me. In other words, you intended it for evil. But God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, which is actually the opposite of what was originally intended. And you see this also be true in the life of Job. A little while ago, my wife was reading Job, and she was commenting to me, and she said, I don't, I don't like Job. Not, not the person Job. She didn't like the book of Job. And the reason was is because she said, you know, we see what is actually, you know, taking place, what transpires between God and Satan. Satan comes to God and says, you know, you see that guy down there, you know, Job? You think he's such a good servant of yours? I want to attack him. I'll show you that he's not everything that you think he is. And God says, okay, well, go ahead. And we think to ourselves, really? Oh, my and Satan comes back to God the next day and he says, well, I attacked him and you know what? He did pretty well. But if you allow me to attack him once more, I'll show you, I'll show you that, you know what, that he's really quite a phony. And God says, okay, well, go ahead again. And we think to ourselves, are you serious? I mean, this is the God that I believe in? Just letting Satan attack? If you make it to the end of the book, because it's a very long book, you may, see that what, you may see that what Satan accomplished actually is one of the best books in the whole world because it helps, has helped millions of people around the globe to be faithful to God in suffering. Because in the end, God let Satan have just enough rope to hang himself. He let Satan and the evil intend something, but in the end, it accomplished the opposite. And this is also true in the life of Jesus. You know how great Jesus is. You know all the good things that he has done, healing the sick, recovering sight to the blind, feeding the hungry. He's done all of these good things. But he ends up being put on a cross to die. And people are standing around and they're looking up at him and says, I don't, I don't see how God could bring any good out of this. 
but of course of all the horrible things that happened to Jesus. The whips on his back, the crown of thorns in his head, the mocking by Roman soldiers, all of the evil that was done to him that day, what did it ultimately accomplish? It accomplished the exact opposite of what it wanted. It accomplished the salvation of the whole world so that people could have eternity with God after this life. Nobody that I know of, nobody, has ever said, you know, I don't believe in God because God let Jesus die. Nobody says that. I've never heard anybody say that. We know why Jesus died. We know, you know, we know what was intended for evil, but God intended it for good. We know the reasons why God let Jesus die. Why he allowed that suffering and torture and that death. Books, books have been written about it. But when it comes to you and I, for us, we often say, right, why did, it, why did God allow this storm? Why did this, God allow this storm in, in my life? You know, what it is that I have gone through or what it is that I, have, I am going through. But you know, there is a book in the heavenly library. It might even be digital, but I know. Showing that all things work together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Whatever storm you and I are in or go through, whatever that happens to be, whatever it is maybe even in the here and the now, even though you and I, we may not know the why of it now, we may not know the answer to that, it means at least this. It's an opportunity for you and I to grow in godliness. I've been through a few storms in my life. And I'm still going through one health-wise. But I have come to learn through hard lessons that it's an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. That's one thing that God foreknew and predestined for all of us believers to become more and more like Jesus. I'd like to end it with this. Because knowing that, that we are in Christ, we belong to him, we are his, and God's goal is for us to grow in godliness, to reflect more and more of his character, to, to have more of his image re-engraved <clears throat> re in us. All the trials, hardships, and sufferings, all of that, you know, that we may go through, all the storms, they can... They can be refining opportunities for you and me. And we can be more than conquerors through them because of the one that is living on the inside of us. More than conquerors. As it talks about in Romans chapter 8. Despite all these things, God is for us. God has our back. God through Christ, is interceding for us. Nothing, nothing can separate us from him. Nothing. I want to show you a picture. 
It's a picture of a father <clears throat> crossing a, a busy street with his child in hand and her holding his hand quite firmly. And let's just assume for a moment that he has good judgment and as a father who has good, good judgment, he's also capable of, of shielding his child from, from any catastrophe, protecting her from any outside force as they walk across this busy road. The one possibility, the one, the one possibility that the, God, the father cannot prevent is the child being willful and wrenching maybe herself from his grasp, running off and potentially being hurt by some vehicle. It's an analogy that seems to parallel what Paul is talking about in the latter verses here of chapter 8 in Romans. He says this. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, God has a firm, loving grip on us believers. And no outside force can separate us from God in his love. A, a, believer, a believer can't lose their salvation like one loses their glasses. But by willful rebellion, one can make a shipwreck of one's faith. The good news, however, is that then that one cannot lose their salvation or simply walk away by accident. No. It's only by a great willful effort that one can throw it all away. So Paul is highlighting here. Paul is highlighting the love that God has for us and his, his loving grasp that he has on us as his children and as followers of, of Jesus. God is sovereign. God is in control. With us also having the reality that we have a free human will, making choices for which we are responsible for. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are a God of, of great love, and that means that you are, also, you are also a God of freedom because you cannot have love without freedom. Freedom to choose, freedom to act, freedom to make choices that matter. And yet in the end, you are sovereign over all. Even to somehow accomplish good out of storms or hardships or the evil things that go on in our world. Help us to trust you that through all things, we can come out the other end a better person. One who has opportunity to be shaped to be more and more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name.